This week in Retro Nuts, for all my rage, I'm just a snail in a maze. Welcome to the Midwest Gaming Classic live episode of Retronauts. We don't number them anymore because we don't know what numbers they are. Uh, but I am the host of this week's panel podcast, Jeremy Parrish. And uh, this week we'll be talking about the Sega Master System. Uh, for those of you who came out to see us specifically, thank you very much. And for those of you who just had a really good seat here in the bar area, uh, <laughs> We are a classic gaming podcast, uh, almost running for 10 years now. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts, Bob Mackey down there is the other. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, please. Oh, please. And uh, you can check out the podcast on iTunes or usgamer.net or retronauts.com. It's easy to find. We're everywhere. So anyway, we'll just jump straight into this week's topic. Um, this, uh, this episode follows the original Retronauts episode of Sega Master System about by about nine years. It's been quite a while, it's 2007. And uh, people still are very, very angry about that episode because they feel that we failed to give the Master System sufficient love. So in order to make up for that, and to make sure no one ever complains about the way we talked about Sega Master System again, we have flown in two Sega experts. Uh, immediately to my right is Greg Seward. Hello. I'm, uh, I'm Greg Seward. Uh, I'm formerly of Electronic Gaming Monthly, uh, currently uh, one of the hosts of the Player One podcast, which has been running about the same length of time as Retronauts, uh, and also run a uh, YouTube series about the history of the Genesis called uh, Generation 16. And next to him is one Mr. Dylan Cornelius. Dylan, what are your bona fides? My bona fides? Uh, I run a site called SegaDoes.com, and I'm currently in the process of reviewing every game ever released for a Sega console. And I've gotten through about half of the Master System library from 85 to 89. That's Japanese, European, and uh, American releases. So hopefully I can provide some insights here. And then there's Bob. Hi, everybody. I was told this podcast would be about ALF and ALF-related products. We are talking about ALF. Okay, good. I'll be it briefly. I rewatched the entire series for this, so I'm ready. <laughs> Even the movie, Project ALF. So anyway, the Sega Master System was released in America in 1986. It was the direct competitor to Nintendo's entertainment system. Okay, we got that much. But, uh, you know, I, I specifically called Dylan to uh, take part in this episode with us because the history of the Master System really goes back further than 1986. To really understand the Master System and kind of how it came to be, you need to wind back the hands of time to about 1981, when Sega first test marketed a game console, uh, which would eventually come out in 1983, called the SG-1000. And Dylan has, has actually played through every single SG-1000 game ever made. So Dylan, why don't you tell us a bit why don't you? <laughs> he is a hero for our times, the one we need and uh, whatever. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, tell us a bit about the SG-1000. Like, what was cool about it and what was not cool about it? 
what's cool about it? Um, well, it was released on the same day as the Famicom in Japan, which was a terrible. Actually, that's not cool. That's actually kind I, of no, bad. yeah. That was, that was a, a really terrible bad thing. idea. If the if the system had come out in 1981, it would have been amazing. If if Sega had just I don't, I don't know what the the deal was there with the test marketing and why it took two years, but by 1981 standards, it was amazing. It was a ColecoVision. Like literally, it was the same hardware as a ColecoVision, and it would have done great. But it came out in '83, up against the Famicom, which was a much more capable system. Right. Um, you know, on the on the Famicom, you had pretty pretty clean arcade ports of Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., um, fairly modern titles, and then on the SG-1000, uh, a lot of the games were from three years prior. There were there were Sega arcade games like Borderline. Um, safari hunting, which is different than Safari Hunt, things like that, but they just they couldn't compare, and so SG-1000 really uh, struggled. Uh, yes, sir. Did, did the SG-1000 not have scrolling? Yeah, it's flick screen. Right, flick scrolling, yeah. Um, which, I, I don't know how it looked to gamers back then, but to, to our eyes it looks very, very choppy. Um, I don't know what you would compare it to, Jeremy. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you saw a lot of that, it, like like Pitfall, you know, had had that kind of screen by screen scrolling. So it was very much sort of like a previous generation concept. One of the Famicom's design principles, like you know, the the hardware designers sat down and said, we need to give this thing scrolling. So it has clean horizontal scrolling, which became really important uh, for. And you see it in a lot of their early games. And the the SG one thousand launching alongside that was. It's looking kind of rough. And you know, another thing about the, the Famicom's launch is that it had Donkey Kong, like you said, but it was a really good port of Donkey Kong, whereas the SG-1000's ports were not that accurate. It had Wonder Boy, but it was a flick-scrolling Wonder Boy with like one color sprites, or two color sprites. Um, Congo Bongo was just baffling, oh. bafflingly terrible on SG-1000. Yeah, absolutely terrible. Uh, it doesn't even resemble the, there's no isometric perspective uh, they couldn't. They couldn't recreate that whatsoever, and so it's just this flat screen and this uh, horrible pastel graphics, which is pretty. Uh, that's just the SG1000's bread and butter pastel graphics. Uh, so, yeah, the, the arcade ports. Sega really tried because that was their. That was kind of their selling point. Would continue to be their selling point through the years, but the, it just the tech wasn't there, and. You know, I, I should say that despite the fact that the SG-1000 had a pretty rough start, and it was, you know, really kind of hobbled by the fact that it was a day-to-day, day-one competitor with the Famicom, and then, you know, a few weeks later, the MSX computer standard, which was kind of like a more advanced variant of the SG-1000, came out. So it, it really was kind of fighting from behind, but despite all of that, Sega still considered it a success. They didn't really have high expectations for it. I think it sold like 100,000 units in the first couple of months, and that was like two or three times what Sega expected, and they said, okay, yeah, we're not really competing at the same level as Nintendo yet, but there's a business here. And so they continued to pursue the SG-1000 and continued to refine it, um, they released the SG-3000. Uh, do you want to talk about that, Dylan? Uh, you mean the SC-3000? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, SC. There was Sega Game 1000 and Sega Computer 3000. Right, and that was Sega's only home computer they ever released. And it actually sold better than the SG-1000. Um, but, yeah, that was, a, that was one uh, road they went down briefly. And then there was the SG-1000 Mark II, 
which came out in 84, had a redesign, uh, complete console redesign, and the controls were better. The original SG-1000 controls had this like little joystick thing in the center of the D-pad, very stiff. Uh, just, yeah, well, okay, so the, the SG-1000 originally had a really bad controller. Like, it's infamously terrible, and everyone who's ever used it hates it. Uh, but it was hardwired into the system, and it was very fragile. So if your SG-1000 fragile controller broke, you were stuck with a console that had a broken controller that was hardwired into it. So it was a huge, huge problem. And the SG-1000 Mark II really, uh, it, it showed Sega looking at the things that the Famicom did better and said, all right, let's do some of that. So the control, uh, control system was better. You know, it had a D-pad that you could screw a control stick into if you were really old school. But you didn't have to use like that same fragile controller. Um, it it kind of moved them, some things around. It was basically the same hardware inside, but it looked nicer and it was more reliable and just a better piece of kit. And the uh, the SC three thousand that we mentioned, um, that's very comparable to a Coleco Atom if, if you're familiar with that. Uh, so it was you know kind of an expanded capabilities for the for the game system and used the console as the heart of a computer. So. Uh, you know, kind of that was kind of a trendy thing back then, and uh, that did pretty well for Sega too. But eventually, is there anything else you need to say about the SG One Thousand? Yeah, there was also Sega being Sega, they couldn't help but release peripherals just up the wazoo. Uh, there was the card, I believe the card catcher uh, came out in '84, and similar to the Master System cards, um, they they started Sega started using uh, these things called My Cards and. Eventually, I think they were just so cheap to produce that all the SG-1000 games started coming out on these My Cards in around 85. Yeah, those are very comparable to, uh, you know, uh, TurboGrafx Who Cards, uh, about the same size, like a credit card with a circuit printed on it. And um, those eventually did kind of come to the U.S. Uh, there were a very, hand very few uh, handful of games for Master System released on the card format. They weren't compatible with the SG-1000 or with other regions, but you could kind of see that vestige carrying through. Yeah. Um, and the card catcher it might be comparable to something like the Starpath Supercharger in the US, um, where you have like something you plug into the system and then a game that plugs into that. It was, it was basically a cartridge peripheral into which you plug, plug the game. So it was a much cheaper and more effective way to distribute games. Yeah, and the Mark II had the card catcher built in. So that's was another improvement upon the original design as well. And, you know, Sega did do some arcade ports on the SG-1000, but you also saw them creating some original games. A guy named Yuji Naka created a game called Girl's Garden. Uh, is that any good? It is. It's really good. Uh, the, the story is a little uh, questionable. Um, you play this little girl, and your goal is to collect flowers in this field to prevent your boyfriend from running away with another girl. And at the top of the screen, there's this like little meter of the, of the boy getting closer and closer to the girl. And if he reaches her, you know, love is over. Uh, so, so it, story's kind of crazy, but, uh, but yeah, the gameplay is actually, it, it holds up even today. Probably one of the best, if not the best. Yeah, and the SG-1000 had some other kind of notable, familiar games. It had a port of Space Invaders, because every system did. Uh, it had a port of Zaxxon, which didn't work out that well, but it's admirable that it was there. Um, let's see, Monaco GP. They, it had a Galgo 13 game, I think one of the first anime console games, which was based on the kind of long-running uh, James Bondish 
sniper manga, very adult, very hard-boiled. Of course, the SG-1000 game was nothing, no, no sex, no murder. It was just like, no, shooting, right? Just sniping, yeah. sniping out windows on a train. Uh, it had games like Bomb Jack that you might recognize from the NES Load Runner. And uh, I think the final game was uh, the Black Onyx, which was released in 1987. So that system had a really long life. The Black Onyx, of course, being uh, sort of the first you know, true RPG made for Japan. Showed up on a lot of computers and a lot of consoles and eventually even made its way to SG-1000. But eventually, it came time to leave the SG-1000 behind. And you know, there was the Mark II, but it was basically the same system. And uh, for the Mark III, Sega decided, let's really build on this thing. Let's really improve it. And this launched in October 1985. So by that point, the uh, SG-1000 was two years old, and the NES, the Famicom, was just first uh, coming to the US as a test market device uh, in, in, in America as the Nintendo Entertainment System. So that kind of gives you an idea of when the Mark III showed up in Japan. And it was really Sega's attempt to take its console and make it better than the NES. Yeah, and um, the Famicom launched with Donkey Kong, right? It did. The, the Master System launched with Teddy Boy, which is a very well, different we're not, we're not talking about the Master System yet. We're talking oh. about the Mark III. Did, which the, is did technically, the Mark III launch with Teddy Boy? I don't know. I think it did. I tried, I to, I tried first... to tune out Teddy Boy. Oh. You seem really obsessed with it. Do you I want to talk about Teddy it? I love Teddy Boy because it has three strikes against it. One, it's based on an arcade game no one in America had heard of. Two, uh, that arcade game is referencing a pop song in Japan no one in America had ever heard of. And three, Teddy Boy is referencing a kind of fashion from the 50s from the UK. So it had three, uh, three strikes against it. Not leading with your strongest foot. So the, uh, the, the Sega Mark III, they dropped the name SG-1000, it was just the Mark III, uh, was not an entirely new piece of equipment. It was not an entirely new piece of hardware. It actually used the exact same processor as the SG-1000. But what Sega did, and maybe this is kind of like a precursor to the way they designed the Saturn, they actually added a, um, a video processor that was many times, like three times more powerful than the core processor. And most of the work of the Master System was done by that video processor. And the video processor actually had much, not much, but, but notably better capabilities than Nintendo's system. So, um, you know, they, they really kind of worked within the, the sort of limits that they had but pushed beyond what the competition was doing. And it was, uh, in my opinion, a pretty clever approach to, uh, to kind of refreshing their hardware line without totally changing uh, the nature of their business and without you know, having to completely design a new piece of hardware from the ground up, which takes a long time. And uh, it also makes, if I'm not mistaken, it makes the Mark III the world's first backwards compatible console. The uh, Atari 7800 wouldn't launch for a few months uh, after that. I think it's great that it's backwards compatible, but one of the things that you can th you sort of look at now too, which is something that was sort of the downfall of Sega eventually, when you think about the timeline you've just described, we were going in the space of what, two and a half years? We've gone through three console iterations already. Yeah, it's great that it's backwards compatible, but you know, they, Sega was just constantly moving forward, it seems, and sort of leaving everything behind as it happened. Yeah, I mean, I think we're starting to see that again with talk of like the yeah. PlayStation 4K and things like that. This idea that, oh, maybe consoles should be iterative and tough luck, tough early adopters, that's too bad. Sega ahead of its time once again. <laughs> but the, the Mark III made a lot, of, uh, a lot of changes to the hardware. Uh, on the outside also, it had removable controllers, which were much more like the Famicom had. They were designed uh, very much in that style. Uh, much more usable. They, they couldn't use the exact cross pad because that was patented. 
So it has like a square pad, which I've never really been that big a fan of because my fingers tend to drift toward the diagonals, which is really bad in a game like Zillion where you have to like run and crawl because I'll crawl at the wrong times. But it was a big improvement over what had come before. And again, that had the little uh, thumbstick that you could screw into the center of the D-pad if you wanted to go old school. Um, a few weird things like the, uh, the pause button was actually on the console. I think that was the case with the Mark III as well as the Master System. Yeah, and the face, the uh, the one and two buttons usually double the start button, which is confusing when you pick it up the first time. Yeah, but I, I sat down and I made some comparisons here between what the Master System could do and the NES could do, or the, the Mark III, same fundamental hardware. Um, the Master System had 32 colors on screen at once versus 25 for the NES, a 64 color palette versus 52 for the NES. Uh, it could do 16 colors per sprite, which was a big deal. The NES could only do four. Um, it had multiple video modes. You could have sprites in four different sizes. Uh, and it had much more memory. It had eight uh, kilobytes of RAM versus Nintendo's two kilobytes. And it had 16 kilobytes of VRAM versus, Nintendo, or, yeah, versus Nintendo's two kilobytes. So a much more capable system uh, with a better color palette. could do more on screen at once. Things could look better. Uh, Sound, I think we're going to take give it a pass. It wasn't as good, in my opinion, but it's a matter of taste. Kind of, um, I don't, we were talking about this yesterday, and it kind of like shows where Nintendo or where Sega was going with uh, what would eventually be the Genesis sound processor. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the, I think one of the biggest problems, we're going to get into the master system itself here in a minute, but one of the, the biggest issues I think that the hardware uh, suffered when it came over here is that they actually got rid of the ability to use the FM synth. I think it was an expansion in the original hardware, the Mark III. Um, but that's one of the things that I found back then and even now is that you play Master System games and um, they've got kind of a really screechy, not all of them do, but a lot of them have a very screechy sound. It's a very high-pitched uh, music and sound in general. And when you get to listen to some of those games using the FM sound, it's night and day. It's unbelievable how good it could have sounded. Um, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's something kind of interesting is the whole idea of the, the console expansions. I think. Um, the ones that Nintendo had available, you know, through third parties mainly for the NES became pretty well known, like, you know, the VRC6 chip that ran Castlevania 3 in Japan and had really great music. Um, but that was on a per cartridge basis, whereas for the Master System, or the, the Mark III anyway, it was actually a hardware expansion that you could just plug into the system, and if a game was programmed to take advantage of it, uh, for instance, Fantasy Star, uh, then it would have this really great sound. It, like again, it, it really brought it closer to the uh, to the Sega Genesis and uh, sounded really great. Um, and you know, there are some collections I think of, of, of games that include the FM option for Fantasy Star. So if you ever have a chance to check that out, I highly recommend it. It's it's a night and day difference. It goes from being like well composed but maybe a little irritating music to like oh, yeah, this is great stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, of course, the most important thing about the Mark III was that it came with a built-in game called Snail Maze. Do you guys want to talk about that? Uh, what's to say about Snail Maze? Um, so, yeah, if you don't have a cartridge plugged into your console, uh, it just starts you up and you control this little snail and you have to get out of the maze. Uh, and you're given this, I think it's 60 seconds. Um, and then you can keep going, but it doesn't regenerate. It regenerates very little of your time. Um, for each level, and eventually the snail just never gets through the maze. Is that is that more or less entertaining than Snake? 
I would say less. No, the, uh, the biggest drawback to the Mark III wasn't really anything to do with the system itself, but because it did take so long for Sega to get to that point, like Greg said, um, by the time the Mark III came out in Japan, the Famicom had been out for two and a half years and had really just dominated the market. Like, third parties were flocking to the Famicom, and Nintendo started to kind of lock down its uh, publishing rights and got a lot of exclusivity. And as a result, Sega found that no one wanted to publish for its console, even you know, was, even though its console was more powerful, more capable, um, and was a really nice system. Everyone was kind of on board with Nintendo, which already had the really big install base, and you know, for market reasons and also for you know Nintendo's own business strategies and limitations and contracts, Sega couldn't really get any people on board to. Uh, to publish for them. Yeah, as a result, I think, like, most of the Master System games are made by Sega, correct? Yeah, Sega, okay, the Mark, Mark III had two games published for it by a third party called Salio, which was actually just a shell corporation front for Tecmo, and that was uh, Solomon's Key and Rygar. Uh, but those are the only two third party published games. Everything else was published first party by Sega, even if it was a, you know, a game like Ys or R-Type or whatever, you know, that was developed by someone else originally, Sega would actually do its own conversion in-house or work with one of their kind of, uh, what do you call them, second-party studios, like Sims and Aspect? Yeah, and Compile, I think, did a lot of work for them as well. But that's also something, again, laying the groundwork for, for Sega right through the 90s in, in that, you know, because they had to do that sort of thing, you get, like, all the way into the early days of the Mega Drive and the Genesis, where you've got Strider, which is obviously a big Capcom arcade game released by Sega. Ghouls and Ghosts, Forgotten Worlds, that sort of thing. Like, that laid the groundwork. I mean, pretty smart when you think about it. You know, if you're, you're being hamstrung by your competition, then go around them. Yeah, and one of the advantages there is that um, Sega knew its hardware really well. So those ports were actually really high quality. Like, the, the Master System version of R-Type is amazing. Like that's the first time I ever saw the game, and uh, you know it, it holds up really favorably to the arcade version or the PC inver engine version. It's actually better than the PC engine version in some ways because you get the whole game on one cartridge as opposed to two cards, uh, two separate purchases, like it was for uh, Turbo Graphics. Yeah, I mean they did make some good stuff, but I think the reason that Master System games have a lower batting average, I think, than NES games, is because Sega was spread very thin. Just reading about it, apparently, like it was not uncommon for a game development to take like six weeks, just six weeks for one game, which is kind of crazy, even back then. Yeah, and I think for maybe for like the first half of the system's life, uh, Sega's real passion was arcade games, and I think they started to take console development more seriously as the Master System matured, and they started to look toward the Genesis. But um, you know, that was that was right around the time, 1985, 86, that Sega was really starting to become this super dominant arcade powerhouse, making games like OutRun, Quartet, Afterburner, Super Hang-On, like, that was kind of the golden age of Sega's arcade business, and I don't, I don't think that they necessarily neglected the console business, but uh, I really think that's where they kind of poured their resources first and foremost, was, was to the arcade. Hang-On has a great Master System port, too. Yeah, it yeah I mean, that was a, sh a pack-in. It does make Mock Rider look like crap, apparently. <laughs> yes. Although Mark Ryder does a good job of that itself. <laughs> so anyway, the Mark III ultimately in Japan was kind of a non-starter. It sold, I think, 1.7, 1.8 million units total in its lifetime. Uh, I guess you could add the hundreds of thousands of units that uh, the 
the SG-1000 and SC-3000 sold, but that, that system was less than 3 million units altogether. The Famicom, by comparison, in Japan had 20, 21 million units moved in its lifetime. So, you know, it, it's kind of like the same as the, the Master System NES market uh, ended up here, with NES having 90% and Master System having 10. Um, and that was just something kind of unavoidable. You, you mentioned, uh, Greg, something about the uh, the uh, Genesis kind of having those first-party developed and published uh, ports of, of third-party games initially, but um, Sega eventually broke out of that, and I think that was because of EA, wasn't it? Electronic Arts? Uh, yeah, I think EA had a big... I mean, EA chose Sega over Nintendo, really, and it all had everything to do with the fact that they could sort of... Um, they could dictate terms with Sega because they were, you know, they were in a much worse position. So, but I think that was sort of the beginning of the change around there. There was also a lot of other things happening at that time, though. There was the U.S. looking into Nintendo's business practices. Uh, so it was around the end of 1990 that I think uh, Nintendo started to loosen up a little bit, and you started to see uh, third parties coming in, a claim coming in, Sunsoft, that sort of thing. But yeah, I think it became pretty clear to Sega pretty early on that the the Mark III just didn't have what it was going to take to beat Nintendo in its own game. Uh, so they began not to build another version of the system, uh, yet another system, uh, but instead to look to the international market, the way, same way Nintendo had with the NES. So they started to take the game uh, first to the US, and then they went beyond that to the UK, Europe, and Brazil, where it became a really big deal. Um, but you know, the US was first, and that was kind of their, their next attempt to build a big market. So. Um, that's where we come into the master system. All of this has just been a preamble leading up to the master. Thank you for watching the pre-show. Yeah. So now we can actually have the podcast. Hi guys, welcome. So master system. What do you guys want to say about this thing? Uh, master system. It's a fantastic console, uh, developed console, but the the games just aren't there. Uh, like Bob was saying, Sega was just spread way too thin, and. A lot, you know, they had the arcade ports, uh, many of them they would re-release on the Genesis because uh, the, the hardware was better, and so, you know, that you might have a game like Space Harrier that comes out on the Master System, and it's not at all like the arcade, but it's fun for, you know, 1987. But then they released Space Harrier 2 in 89 for the Genesis, and you're like, I don't need to play Space Harrier on the Master System anymore. So, um, and then a lot of their... A lot of the games produced specifically for the console, though, like Fantasy Star, uh, were fantastic um, because obviously they pooled more of their their resources to I don't know that you'd call them blockbuster games, but but just it just felt like they knew they it was it was more ambitious um, than just your traditional arcade style shooter or whatever. Um, yeah, they were they were brave enough to put uh, Tommy Lasorda on a video game, so. No, you really see, um, if you look at the life of the, the Master System, you really see the quality of the software improving the same way that it did you know, on, on NES. There's, there are fewer games for Master System, so there's not as much of a kind of a spread to look at. I think it's like 150 games versus, uh, what is NES and Famicom? It's like 1,200 or something? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, definitely kind of a, a difference of, of a magnitude of order, basically or an order of magnitude, yes, whatever. Anyway, um, but you know, you, you do see that evolution. You see Sega getting more comfortable, starting to make games that are better suited to the console. They're less arcade ports. 
and more games that you can really sink your teeth into. And by the end of this, the life of the system, you had stuff like Fantasy Star, which was mentioned. You had Golden Axe Warrior, which was a great Zelda clone. You had uh, Zillion, which was a brave attempt to mix like Metroid and Impossible Mission. Uh, you had Fantasy Zone 2, which was a sequel to an arcade game that did a great job of just you know, converting that, that shooter gameplay into a console-specific experience. It's, it's so good, in fact, that um, developer M2, who does all the Sega 3D Ages, has actually taken the Master System Fantasy Zone 2 and turned it back into an arcade game for like the 3D Classics, where it's running on the arcade hardware. So I, I think that is a testament of how good that game was. Like, if it's good enough for them to give that kind of treatment, uh, it's definitely worth your time today. So, so it is, it, it's really in, uh, Sega kind of cutting its teeth and uh, getting a handle on the console market so that when the Genesis came around, that could be just a fantastic system all up and down. Yeah, like you can really, when you, when you consider, you look at things like Black Belt and, um, well, I can't remember the other one is, but uh, Kajakuo, I forget what that was called here, but that was, they were on the Master System and then there were sequels to those on the, uh, on the, Ma the Mega Drive Genesis. And you can start of you can really if you start at the beginning of the, the, the Master System's life and move through the Mega Drive, you can really see Sega coming into its own as a console game manufacturer. I mean, the arcade ports were getting great as well, but but like as, for for side scrolling action games in particular, they just got much, much better. Like their first their first attempts weren't great, but as you got, you know, into up to Sonic basically, like you, you can really feel that that uh, that quality rising. Yeah, and I really like the way that Sega reworked the hardware for the U.S. They really went for that, like, they just said, it's the 80s, let's go all in on 80s design. And the hardware went from being this kind of, like, white and gray and blue, sort of soft, rounded, very safe and friendly-looking console in Japan to this stark, angular, black machine with red grids on it. It has, like, this weird diagram silkscreened on the front that I, I don't actually know what it means. It's supposed to represent, like, the game experience and the controls or something, but it's, it's how to just, hook it up. It's there, and it's cool. And then, of course, you have the uh, the packaging, which... <laughs> so, Master System packaging gets a lot of derision. I'm going to pass this around so everyone can appreciate it up close. I have, I have a theory about this, I, Jeremy. So, you know, people people laugh at the Master System because it does have the, uh, the packaging, has this really stark simplicity to it. But it's kind of weird because even though it's just like white with this silver grid on it and text and these tiny terrible clip art graphics. Um, like there's kind of a lot of love and care given to it. The typography is very reminiscent of what Apple was doing in its marketing, that kind of like bold uh, Garamond, you know, kind of Roman typeface. Uh, and then like even though there's very little on that cover, like it's mostly white, it's not just a simple printing process. If you know printing, you know that silver ink is not one of the things that is part of the normal print, print process. So that's actually like a special five-color spot process. It's weird and wasteful, but, but at the same time, like, it does set the system apart. And it does say like, they had branding in mind. Like, there's more consistency in Master System packaging than any other console I can yeah, think of. It, it reminds me of the uh, NES, the first NES black box games, where they had a co cohesive style, and if the NES stuck with that, I would have been happy, you know. Maybe it was not as, as uh, evocative as, you know, a weird Mega Man could be. But yeah, like, my theory is that Tonka, they bought a clip art package and rolled up their sleeves one afternoon and got to work, but... I mean, the, um, the pro wrestling one is weird. It's of a guy holding his own head. Uh, but I think the actual weirdest one is the box art Brazilian, 
which is a, a screenshot of the game not aligned in any particular direction, and it's a screenshot of the menu, like of the pause menu. So, like, what? What? Okay, yeah. Pause menus were new and innovative back then. I guess so. I mean, that, this was 1987. You, you had to get up and pause the game, I mean. They didn't even call it menus, they called it subscreens. Oh, subscreens, I see. It was new and exciting and scary. But yeah, there, there were some weird kind of miscues um, with the Master System marketing, but at the same time, I think their, their heart was in the right place. And whatever you want to say about Master System, like, you know you're looking at a Master System game immediately when you see that packaging. It's iconic, it's bold, it's distinct, it's different. So, you know, I, I think that kind of did the job. I don't know if it actually sold any games, which is kind of the other part of, uh, you know, packaging design, but it's a good start. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and you look at it now, it's something that in the mid-90s everybody went to, like, all of Nintendo's boxes started, especially on the spines, started to look the same. Sega started doing the color-coded thing with their four million different systems. And like today, you see the same thing, right? Like you've got the, the 3DS, Microsoft, Sony, everyone does it, so. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm just convinced that the art on the, the Master System boxes was just a joke none of us were in on. Like, they had to know that those things were terrible, but um, yeah. Yeah, the, um, the Sega uh, Master System launch in America took, I think it took some cues from Nintendo's launch with the NES. And in some ways, it actually one-upped what Nintendo did. Um, you know, they, they had a light gun as the pack-in, just like Nintendo with the zapper. Um, but one thing they didn't do was change the size of the cartridges the way Nintendo did. If you're familiar with Japanese Famicom cartridges, they're about half the height of NES cartridges. And NES cartridges are actually just empty space uh, on the top half. They just wanted the games to look bigger because they thought Americans need bigger things. And they uh, designed the boxes uh, so that they would be more like VHS tapes and people would not think of them as video games but instead as like entertainment options to sit alongside video cassettes on your shelf. Well, Sega didn't do that with its carts, but it did take the packaging and made VHS size clamshell packaging instead of cardboard packaging, which was like kind of the, the premium, you know, rental market only VHS packaging. So they kind of went to an extra step of, of, of effort to, uh, to make their packaging stand out. And I think that was one of the best choices they made because you can go and you can find Sega Master System games complete and in amazing condition these days. Buying NES games complete in box, in a box with a good condition, is really difficult. It's uh, expensive because of the collector bubble uh, that, that's hit Nintendo harder than Sega. But also it's just harder because those NES boxes took a lot of abuse. Master System boxes, man, unless you like soaked them in water, they were pretty much indestructible. And they kept the game safe, and they kept the manual safe. So uh, they really, I feel like Sega really thought, you know what, this system is going to be played by really dumb kids who don't care about their stuff. So let's let's accommodate that for that, you know, account for that, and uh, work around it. And they they did, and it's uh, something they carried through into the Sega Genesis into like 1984 or so, or 94. It was distributed by Tonka, and they probably had some hand in the packaging. Aren't they known for like durable toys, like That's giant true. trucks you can just smash into the ground? These are the Tonka trucks of yeah, Tonka uh, video game packaging. Um, so yeah, the, uh, the US system at launch supported both cartridges. It wouldn't actually play Japanese cartridges. They were a very slightly different shape, uh, so they weren't compatible. And it also supported the card games. Not very many of those were released in the US. Um, in Japan, the card game, the uh, Mark III, could support uh, play SG-1000 games. Since none of those came out in the US, Sega didn't really bother with compatibility, so there's like a system BIOS change or something that makes SG-1000 games unplayable on a master system? Right, yeah, there's, I don't, I don't even think it's possible, I mean, I guess you could mod it or try to mod it, but 
yeah, it's, it's not it's not feasible. <laughs> so, um, kind of a mixed mixed uh, launch for the system. Um, I think Sega's biggest problem in the U.S. was kind of like what the, they faced in Japan, which is that Nintendo had a head start. And it wasn't so much that Nintendo had a head start in terms of time, because the NES made its wide American launch in June 1986, and the Master System was October 1986. So that's just a difference of, what, like three, four months? Uh, five months, maybe? So that's less than half a year. So it's not, you know, an intractable lead. But the problem was Nintendo had a different kind of start in America, and they had more systems in place, they had more distribution in place, more partnerships. You know, they had been distributing their own arcade games since uh, Radar Scope. That went really badly for them, but then Donkey Kong came along and went really well. And that allowed them to set up, you know, direct retail distribution, or, you know, not, not retail, but they, they set up a network cross-country uh, in the US, and Sega didn't do that. Sega mostly published its arcade, I think all of its arcade games initially, under other imprints like uh, Konami, uh, didn't didn't Frogger come out under Konami's imprint, or was that a Konami game? Okay, that's always confusing. But they they worked with Gremlin and uh, maybe Centuri and a few others, and uh, kind of let other people do the the heavy lifting of distributing uh, distributing uh, arcade games in the U.S. And they uh, they didn't have the the toy connections that Nintendo did because Nintendo had the Game and Watch system that it sold through toy shops and electronic shops, and uh, Sega kind of. They, they kind of lacked that in that Nintendo did. So Nintendo did have this advantage uh, also with marketing. They just, you know, they were entrenched in the U.S. by the time the NES came out. Yeah, and, and I think um, Nintendo had the fun club, which would eventually become the propaganda arm known as Nintendo Power. Sega had nothing similar for a while. I mean, I think the Sega Visions magazine didn't come around until the Genesis, so a few years in, I think. Right, yeah, the fun club news was, um, and the fun club, that was Nintendo kind of taking advantage of the networks and the systems and connections and partnerships that it had built in the first half of the 80s to really, really push their system. And Sega just was coming from behind. They didn't have uh, that kind of deep entrenched network in the US. And it, it really hurt them and worked against them. Well, when you think about the fact that even up until around, I think, the launch of Sonic, Sega was still struggling to get in some of the major retailers then. Uh, yeah, they, they didn't have that arm. And there was, there was another um, Sega it was like a power club uh, thing that came out. I think it was the last couple of years or the last year of the Master System. They did have something. I forget what it's called, but it's what's morphed into Sega Vision. I believe, was that the Sega Challenge newsletter? Yeah, Sega Challenge newsletter. And there was actually, there was, they had one game that you could only get uh, through ordering it, uh, the newsletter. It's called Power Strike. It was a very good shoot 'em up. So. Which, yeah, that was Aleste in Japan. Aleste, yeah. So if you're familiar with the Aleste series, uh, by Compile, right? Compile, yeah. yeah. So anything, you know, shooter by Compile, you know it's going to be good. So yeah, it's, it's one of those, uh, there were there were a lot of good games on uh, Master System. I don't think we're going to have time to really get into the Master System library. We're, we're going to record kind of a supplemental segment to this uh, to this panel later that'll be released in a, a just a podcast episode. So we'll talk more about the games uh, in that. But, um, you know, the, the U.S. market ended up being kind of a non-starter for Sega also. I think they sold about two million here. So it did a little better than in Japan, but not really that much. But Sega did have huge, huge success in uh, the rest of the world. Uh, they didn't do well in America, they didn't do well in Japan, where Nintendo had a great foothold. But eventually they took their system to the U.K. and Europe and the system exploded there. It sold like seven million units, I think, in, in Europe, and then another five in Brazil. 
Uh, I don't know why it was specifically Brazil, not South America, just Brazil, that one country um, had just a huge love for Master System, but, but Sega did eventually find you know, the, its audience, and uh, the system did much, much better in, the, uh, in Europe than the NES did. One of the things in Brazil, a bit of insight into that, is that actually uh, one of the reasons it was so big in Brazil is because Tectoy licensed it. It wasn't Sega that went to Tectoy, it was the other way around. Tectoy was licensing toys, and the very first toy that company ever licensed was the Zillion Gun. Uh, and Zillion was on television, or I think Tectoy was instrumental in getting Zillion on television down in Brazil. Um, but the, the key thing there is that there were huge tariffs on anything that was foreign that you brought into Brazil to sell. So what Tectoy did was set up its own manufacturing plants run by like, Sega oversaw that obviously, so they could sell at a much lower price. Plus they had crazy customer support, kind of like what they had with the NES in, in North America where you had these um, third party licensed uh, support group, like support stores, these little mom and pop shops, that, but they were licensed by Nintendo. Tectoy did that with Master System in Brazil, which is one of the reasons why it was so huge. But they were still releasing games for that thing, like 98. Yeah, like Street was, Fighter really 2 like, was yeah. a game that came out on the Master System in Brazil. And in the UK, it was, it was kind of the same thing. I mean, that was one of the nice things about, or one of the things that I think is kind of sad about the Master System in the US is that it came out here in 86. Japan stopped supporting it in 88. Like it, it was only a two-year window that we had here. But when the UK and Europe latched onto it, you had all those sort of bedroom coders that had come up through the microcomputer, through the Sinclair and that sort of thing, getting in there and really messing with the system. And if you go and you check out a lot of the games that came out post-1988 in the UK, there's some really impressive stuff for the system. Yeah, the only, the only Japanese console I think that has kind of a similar release library to the Master System was maybe the N64, because it was so big in the US versus where, where it was in Japan and Europe. Um, so, you know, that ended up having just a ton of Western get developed games for it, much more so you know, proportionately than other Nintendo consoles. And Master System was very much the same way. Like, half of its library came into being after Sega really kind of stopped supporting it much in the US. I mean, they continued selling it, and you could buy games retail if you were able to find it uh, into the early 90s. But, you know, it, they, they really were happy to jump over to the, to the Genesis as quickly as they, they could, because that was a much more viable market. Um, but in Europe and, and, the, and Brazil, it just kept going and going. Um, Greg, weren't you saying that in, in Europe, they pretty much went from Master System to Saturn? A lot of people just skipped over the Genesis altogether? No, I, that was, um, I don't think that, that's how it happened. The Genesis was actually pretty popular in oh, Europe you lied as well. To I, I might have lied to you. I wanted to make a fool out of you up here in front of everybody. Mission accomplished. <laughs> no, but um, again, Brazil is the main one, but also the Master System is while the Genesis was really popular in the, in, in, um, in the UK and Brazil, the Master System was still popular as well. Um, and it was also actually in Australia, I'd say that too. Um, it's a, a couple of people that I've talked to in Australia for Generation 16 talk about how you know, the experience for a lot of us in our generation here where, you know, everybody had an NES and you had that one kid at school that had a master system and that was kind of weird, but like in those areas it was completely different. You know, like everybody had a master system and you had an NES, like you have one kid that had an NES or something like that. So, um, yeah, it just, it, it's so, it's, it's really interesting to see how it's completely reversed in all those other regions, but in North America and Japan obviously not so much. So we're running a little short on time here, so we probably need to start wrapping this up uh, for the next panel. But um, I would like to just kind of wrap by talking about the Master System Legacy. Um, 
What, what do you guys, do you, do you think there is a master system legacy? I'd like to hear it in your words. I don't want to be the only one talking here. Bob, you're laughing, so I think maybe you have to talk first. I'm just thinking it's great that there's a console in Japan named Mark and a console in Japan named Marty. So that's all I have to add. But I do think um, the odds were against it. I mean, I only saw the Master System in one department store, the defunct Hills department store. I'm not sure if they were in Milwaukee or not, but that was the only place I ever saw it, and maybe it was for a year. So after that, it was just like, oh, Nintendo is the video game I play now. So there was not even a chance. I mean, this might seem kind of obvious, but I just without the Master System, without Sega producing 90% of the library, you'd arguably, they wouldn't have been, uh, the games wouldn't have been as high quality right away on the, on the Mega Drive and the Genesis. And I think they, um, while the marketing was instrumental in getting the Genesis popular in America, I think the games were there. They just, uh, Sega just needed to let people know that they existed. Um, but the Master System, you know, definitely paved the way for, for better things. And I would say, too, that, uh, yeah, well, actually, I agree with what Dylan said. I mean, they had to take care of the system themselves. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see that Nintendo's getting into a similar position now where they have been with the Wii U, where they're the, the, lion, the lion's share of the great games that are created for that system are created by the system manufacturer. But that was kind of the position that Sega was in in the home right through. But the other thing is, too, the legacy of the Master System is the Game Gear. I mean, the Game Gear yep. was a Master yep. System. That's all it was. A Master System, but better. But better. It had uh, 4,096 possible colors as opposed to 64. That's an mm -hmm. improvement. A little bit. Not that yeah. you can necessarily see it on the screen at that size, but the potential was there. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah I mean, the, the Game Gear had a ton of uh, pretty much straight ports of Master System games uh, scaled to the different screen dimensions, but you had stuff like... Master of Darkness or Vampire or whatever you want to call it, which was a pretty good Castlevania clone. Um, I think there was even like a Gunstar Heroes port, which yeah, is Dynamite not a master, Well, there was a, a Master System version of Gunstar Heroes, wasn't there? Well, a lot of those a lot of those Master System versions were actually ports back to the Master mm -hmm. System from right. the Game Gear. Dynamite Heady is another example, uh, and I think Earthworm okay. Jim as well. So, yeah. yeah, and you know, you did see Sega kind of uh, giving giving the Master System some special treatment even late in its life. Um, you know, even though they kind of discontinued it for the most part in Japan in 1988, um, you still had a completely unique version of Sonic the Hedgehog that uh, a lot of fans really like. They really think the, the Master System version of Sonic the Hedgehog is a great game. It's different than the Genesis version, despite being like the same concept, same physics and design in general. Different levels, different uh, challenges, and that sort of thing. It was uh, programmed by Ancient, which is Yuzo Shiro's company, if you're familiar with that composer. He and his sister and his mother own a company, and they, they, did, they did a few games for Master System and Game Gear, and they did a really great job of it. Like, everything he touches is great. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they gave it one last shot there at the end of 199 when they released the Master System 2, which we haven't really talked about. It was just a sort of a stripped down, got rid of the card, uh, card slot and everything, and saw a couple of them on the vendor floor today, but that was late 1990, and then I think 91 was the was Sonic, and I think that was the last U.S. game released for it. Oh, was it? But it was like a $60 price tag at that point, so they were still they were still going for it. Um, but, you know, they also had the power base converter for the, for the Genesis, so there was still some value there. Plus, they got to say they were backwards compatible when Nintendo yeah, I mean, they, wasn't. That, so. was, that was a great example of Sega doing what Nintendo don't, because, Absolutely. you know, the, the Super NES was originally supposed to have a, an NES cartridge a slot, and then Nintendo said, ah, I mean, they even picked the Super NES processor because of its backward compatibility with the NES. But then, for whatever reason, they just said, nah, let's 
let's cut that out. I'm sure they just wanted to save costs and yeah. beat up price again. But Sega, you know, they, they took a different approach and said, well, we'll give you a module that lets you play all your Master System games on Genesis, which if you own I'm any. sure made a lot of parents happy. Well, it did, and it's funny because it's been it's been said by Sega executives at the time that the power base converter was the greater, greatest peripheral no one bought. I mean, it never sold anything, but it was great it was great PR for them to be able to say because there was a big uproar when the Super Nintendo was released mm -hmm. in the U.S. Yep. about how it wasn't backwards compatible. Everyone had tons of games, and they wouldn't be able to play them. And Sega's over here saying, "Look, we've got this." I mean, do you think the Super Game Boy came around because of the power base converter? Do you think Nintendo would have come up with that idea if they hadn't seen Sega doing that and said, "Oh, yeah, maybe. oh yeah." We could do that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So that's pretty great. Anyway, I think that pretty much wraps it up for us. Should we take some questions? Are there any questions in the audience? Does anyone? Oh, there are some questions. Okay. Um, I know we know a lot about the business side of Sega during the Genesis years because of the Console Wars book, which you know has recently come out. But during the Master System, was the U.S. arm? Did they have their own presence there, or were they? More so being licensed out from Japan through Tonka and stuff like they, that. They did have their own presence. I don't know personally how many people there were. I actually spoke to Al Nielsen uh, uh, about a, a week ago, and he, I didn't ask him any specifics, but they, there was a, an arm of Sega, but it was a completely marketing arm, and uh, it was a tiny, tiny team. Um, uh, so if the Master System was really popular in uh, Brazil and lasted for so much longer, were there any, um, like, good games for it that came out there that didn't come out in other territories? Well, they rebranded a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the good American games, like they rebranded uh, Wonder Boy uh, to, to uh, be Sapo the Frog, which is like a Brazilian cartoon. I think they did that with two Wonder Boy games. Um, and then, uh, like Greg, I think, mentioned earlier, um, they were the ones that brought out like Street Fighter 2 and uh, Earthworm Jim. There's even a Virtua Fighter animation, uh, which is surreal uh, to experience. So yeah, they they kept the fires burning and they were surprisingly decent. Uh, like they're better than you would think. Um, so yeah, I would definitely recommend checking checking some of those out. There, I think there's a collection of like a dozen or so games that are that are um, exclusive there, and a lot of those also there were there were some reskins of like I think Wonder Boy or something like that, uh, with with various Brazilian properties like uh, Terma del Monica. There's a Woody Woodpecker game that I think was exclusive to Brazil as well. So yeah, there's a few. There's there's a, there's a Mickey Mouse game that's exclusive to Brazil as well, and Mickey's Ultimate Challenge or something like that. Not great, but and really hard to get. Apparently those games are really hard to get complete in box. All right, maybe one more question and we'll call it a day. I myself uh, collect for the Master System, and I've had uh, a lot of fun actually importing games from the UK because for whatever reason, I can just play those PAL games on my US Master System. And I don't think there's any other system where you can hope to achieve that just because of the signal conversion alone. Do you know like why the technical reasons of why that's even possible that I can do that with this machine and maybe not, nothing else I know of? I have no idea what reason that would be. Does anybody any thoughts? No, I don't. I don't know. I took the microphone just to say that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> at least. yeah I know that uh, PAL games run more slowly on US systems. I, I remember uh, getting a copy of Xenon 2 and thinking, why is this game so sluggish and crappy? Until I realized it was a it was a UK release and it was supposed to run like ten percent faster. So that's, that's why. I, I think 
I have no idea why they would do that, but yeah, there wasn't like a lockout. It was just the games would run at the refresh rate of uh, whatever TV standard you were using, so or whatever system it was running on. I don't know. Kind of interesting, though. Anyway, um, I think that wraps it up for this panel. So thanks, everyone, for coming out. Um, oh, you're very kind. Uh, like I said, we're going to record a little more about Master System, talk specifically about the games, and put this whole thing together into a podcast. That'll be out in about a week. Uh, so you can look forward to that. And uh, otherwise, so Master System, fun little system. I've always had a soft spot for it, even though people think I hate it for some reason. So hopefully we've uh, divorced you of that opinion. And I hope you enjoyed this panel. So thanks again for coming out. Yeah, thanks so much. Be sure to listen to Retronauts on the internet. We're everywhere. Classic panel on the Sega Master System to talk some more about Sega Master System. Hi, it's Retronauts. I'm Jeremy Parrish with... Hey, it's Bob Mackey. Hey, it's Dylan Cornelius. Greg Seward. And anyway, Master System games. We didn't really talk about those. Actually, there were a few things we didn't talk about. Before we talk about the games, why don't we talk about the gadgets? There's gadgets. some pretty crazy gadgets yeah. uh, with the, the Master System, Mark III... SG-1000, the peripherals, um, you, you had your light phaser, well, that's normal, but then there's other weird stuff. Dylan, I think yours is, your favorite is... My, I don't know if I'd call it a favorite. It's a favorite. Uh, uh, 3D glasses. Those um, are cool, yeah. Yeah, they, uh, they weren't um, your typical 3D. Yeah, it wasn't you, the red and blue, it's anastropic. Anastropic. Anast anastropic, yeah. Yeah, I could never remember that. Uh, big word. Um, anyway, so <laughs> Sega released about mm, about half a dozen games of uh, middling quality, I would say. Uh, there was a Zaxxon 3D, uh, Maze Hunter 3D. Zaxxon 3D was actually better than the Master System, the original Master System conversion. It was a whole new game. It was much simpler, but um, really took advantage. I think it was one of the key titles that took advantage of the glasses itself. Um, there was also uh, Missile Command 3D, which huh. was the only game to use the 3D glasses and the light phaser at the same time. Whoa, cool. So if you can imagine how cool that kid must have been <laughs> who owned all that and just was, you know, probably that, had his mom take a picture of him while he was And that makes Lucas screen. and his power glove look like a doofus. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. uh, so I read how the glasses work, and it sounds like that could not have existed in 1986 because apparently the shutters alternate flashing left and right. Also, sorry, alternate opening and closing left and right based on the image on the second, screen. Isn't it? Are, were they powered or something, or like how did that work? Yeah, yeah, they they draw power from the same bus as the controllers. So your your, your glasses are wired into the system itself. Yeah. It's wow, the card, it's the card cap. It's, it's the, the card, card slot. Yeah. Okay. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Which wow. is why they won't work with Master System Two. Mm. Well, Nintendo had those too. They yeah. had the um, 
the shutter style glasses in Japan okay, for yeah. the Famicom, and there was 3D Hot Rally and a couple of other games. I'm just thinking of uh, Rad Racer. I didn't have the glasses, so I was like, hitting select makes the game <laughs> ugly. You yeah. can play ugly mode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just bought a copy of Rad Racer, and it doesn't come with glasses. Aww. Aww. I've never like, seen those glasses. You, you told me it was complete. Huh. You liar. Anyway, um, actually, I thought you were going to talk about the trike, the, the tricycle handle. Oh, the, the bike handle? Yeah, tricycle, that was... Tricycle handle. The tricycle handle, is that what we're calling it? Okay. It really does look like a play school uh, That's what's so great about it. It looks like something, yeah, that you played with when you were three years old. Um, <laughs> it, it's just this, like, red plastic box, and I'm assuming it's super... It looks really small from the photos, and, um, it's like, little trike handles, and... A, a gear and then a couple buttons and it was specifically for hang on in japan um but as far as i know you could use it up through the up through the mega drive um racing game so hmm. they, yeah. they they made it run for a while but it never came over to, to the states if you're listening you should google a picture because it looks like one of those things you buy for a kid and like put onto the car mm-hmm. seats like yeah. now you're driving like daddy yeah, you know yeah. that's what it looks like it really to does me. it's 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 a strange little device um my my personal favorite Sega eight bit peripheral never came to the U S, but it's um, I can't even remember what it's called. It's uh, <clears throat> crap. The it's a wireless TV adapter, mm. and it sounds like something again that should not have existed in nineteen eighty six, because it's doing something that people are just now starting to do with HDMI transmission, where you can have like a wireless signal from a console or Blu-ray player or whatever to your television without having a wired connection. Um, That uses Blu-ray. That didn't exist in 1986. So instead, this device was actually just an RF transmitter. You know, RF was the the standard that most people use to connect their Mm -hmm. systems to televisions, and it's RF because it's radio frequency. It, It actually was, like, in that little wire and the little cage around the end of it was signing, sending a radio transmission. That's why there was so much static and interference in, in old game systems like the NES. Um, so this was actually using that and using the RF unshielded and throwing it at a little satellite receiver that would plug into your television. So you didn't <laughs> have to have your Master System or Mark III or maybe it was just the SG-1000, I can't remember which, but you didn't have to have it plugged in directly to your system. But of course, that thing was totally susceptible to outside transmission interference, and it never came out in the U.S. because the FCC, I'm sure, was just yeah. like, no. It sounds like you were basically running your own your own pirate Master System TV Pretty station much. in your house. Radio Free Sega. Yeah. It's the beginning of the Let's Play video. Oh, so yeah. So you just send it to everybody around you. Just tune in. Yeah. Hey, everyone. It's like live streaming. <laughs> yeah. Thanks I for like watching. Um, any, any other peripherals of note? I was not of note, but one of the things that I finally got my hands on today uh, was the um, the arcade stick that came out for the Master System, which I always thought was bizarre. Have you ever seen a picture of it? It's got the buttons on the left, and it's got this big bulbous uh, stick on the right. And but it's it's this really really minuscule little. I always assumed it was as big as an NES Advantage, but um, today I learned that it wasn't. It's just it's it's really tiny and it's really bizarre and it's got the buttons in the wrong spot and it just. I don't know, it, it, but it's got this sort of that same sort of space age look that everything that Sega did back mm. then had. Like this is the future as we see it in 1982. You know what I mean? It does like, look like the gear shift and kits that thing. <laughs> it kind of yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of yeah. when I saw the picture. Yeah, Sega, Sega had an affinity for putting buttons on the on the wrong side. They yeah. did that with the sports pad, which was a a trackball, and then 
buttons one and two on the on the left hand side again. I don't. But the the standard controllers never did that. They always right, had no. the buttons on the right side. Exactly. So what their reasoning was, I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, sometimes Sega does weird stuff. That's why we like them. But our left-handed friends must love them. Right. <laughs> Shigeru Miyamoto was like, oh, if only we could do this. <laughs> I didn't know he was left-handed. That explains everything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was kind of a big deal when uh, they switched around Twilight Princess. Because mm. everyone was like, well, Shigeru Miyamoto's left-handed and he can still play. Oh, I never heard that argument. Wow. It was always a bad idea to be left-handed. Okay, that's fine. But the the meat of the system was really the games, and I've I've kind of looked over the library and and grouped things into like five different categories. There were a lot of arcade conversions. Um, there were a handful, like a subset of that, which were more faithful arcade versions than were available on the NES, which are worth calling out. Um, there were sequels exclusive to Master System to arcade games. There were ports from other systems and PC, and then there were the original games. Um, so we should probably talk about the arcade games first because, I mean, that's kind of Sega's bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Um, in your opinion, what's the best arcade conversion? Uh, Outrun, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't care for Afterburner really as a game, period, mm-hmm. but particularly the Master System just can't, just can't handle um, that game's tech whatsoever. Yeah, Afterburner was really impressive, and cool, and like the way the stick vibrated and everything, but as a game, it's not actually. Well, and the experience is, is <laughs> yeah, the, it's the arcade experience right. that you're going for. You're not, right. you're not going to sit at Yeah, home I mean, that's like, definitely worth 25 cents. Yeah. That was like, mm-hmm. I mean, that was what Suzuki kind of went for, just the flashy kind of immediate experience, even though um, there were better games than Afterburner. They right. were just really meant for you five-minute, you know, five-minute gameplay. Yeah, I mean, there was a Super Hang-On, which had that crazy arcade cabinet yeah. where you sat yeah. down and like, the cockpit turned, like, tilted, and that's how you controlled the game. Just you can like emulate that with the uh, the M2 yep. re-release it's, of that It's game. not the same, though. No, I it's mean, not. I, not that I've ever actually used that, but I can't imagine that, you know, tilting your 3DS same. is the same <laughs> as physically throwing but your body around. I, I like that they put that in, at least. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. They, they no, it's cool, it's yeah. cool. But, I mean, that, that really was kind of Sega's thing. But, you know, despite that, they still made Hang On the, the pack-in game. Right, yeah, they made Hang On, and they made... Um, uh, combo pack with it was Hang On and Astro Safari Warrior. Hunt and Safari Hunt, yeah. Um, so Hang On was kind of the duck hunt of, of the Master System. Maybe <laughs> Not that it was Safari, the Safari Hunt would probably be. The, yeah, but yeah. I mean, Duck Hunt shows up on like all the multi parts. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Hang On was Hang On is decent. Um, what I like about Hang On is that it's amazing in the arcade using the using the motorbike, but it's equally as fun play on a, on a console just because it controls so well mm. and um but i don't care as much for the master system version it's okay actually the sg1000 version which is called hang on 2 uh controls better than the master system version and <laughs> while obviously it doesn't look as good um it runs really smoothly there's like no you know as we talked about earlier uh, a lot of flick scrolling for sg1000 games but that one I don't know what they did, what kind of trickery they, they pulled, but that one just uh, 
feels like a smoother, smoother experience. Oh, yeah. Master System version. The That's super scalar stuff did not work as well in Space Harrier for Master System. Oh, no. It's kind of no. gross. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it isn't, looks... isn't Thunderblade? Is Thunderblade on Master System? Or is it the yeah, Genesis yeah, version? Okay. Genesis, it's yeah. the, 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 the Master System version that's such, a, oh, such an abomination. I've never even seen that. I, thought, I think the yeah. Genesis one looks bad. Yeah, it does. But, I mean, that one had, like, buildings that you were flying through <laughs> in the arcade and... That yeah. just, it did not work. Yeah. The, like, the sense of illusion of depth. It was um, a cool trick for the arcade. Yeah, it was. It was yeah. just, like, billboards, basically. It's not really that fun a game, but again, no. it's like Afterburner, where you're just like, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> I'm literally Tom Cruise. Probably <laughs> <laughs> like the pilot of Airwolf, but yeah. sure. Um, um, what do you think of the the Master System port of Quartet? I have no opinion on that. I thought it's called, like, Duo or something. It's, it's because, double target yeah. in Japan, yeah. but Quartet... Uh, it was called Quartet because you could play four players in the, in arcade. the arcade. But when they released it for the Master System, uh, you it was only one at a time, wasn't it? It was, it was two it was at a time. Two simultaneous. Yeah. Um, still missing half the fun. Missing yeah. half the fun. Not a bad port though. I would I would say. I mean, maybe the the appeal of playing four at a time mm-hmm. is lost, but. But I still think the the main meat of the of the game holds up. Okay, that that yeah. was my question because yeah. I think most people get hung up at the fact that hey, I'm missing two people. Yeah, like is it still a good game? I like that they changed the name because some you know publishers would not be that charitable. Like Final Fight for the SNES should well, be called. Well, it was still called Quartet in the US, wasn't it? It in was. The US, oh, yeah. I was wrong which, then. Okay. Which I think Japan had the better move mm, on that yeah, one, calling yeah. it Double Target. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Shinobi turned out pretty well on, on Master System. They Shinobi added a life solid. bar, which mm-hmm. makes the game a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. I just love the pacing of Shinobi, too. It's so different than, like, Ninja Gaiden, where you're constantly having to fend off, you know, recurring enemies. Shinobi's, um, I don't know, it just feels very, like, like there's one guy up here, one guy up here. Yeah, you it's, know, there's it's, more breathing space. More breathing space, yeah. It's got more of, like, a Castlevania rhythm than... Ninja Gaiden. Yeah, that's a good, good way to put it. Actually. Yeah. Um, although, if you want a Castlevania clone, there's there's Vampire or Kinsaden. Both of those are pretty, like... Oh, Kinsaden. Very... Brutal. Yeah, it, it's rough. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, both of those very much have that Castlevania aesthetic to it. Yeah. That was, that was clearly a big, influential game at the time. But we're not to that yet. We're still talking about arcade conversions. Um, <laughs> Ninja Gaiden is one that I've always meant to play. Did that come to the U.S.? I uh, I don't think it came to the U.S. and it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't a conversion of the arcade game. Right, but it was, it's, it's completely it's, unique. It's like the NES version, but it's new it's, content, but totally different. Mm-hmm. And it's it's surprisingly good. Yeah, it's, it's hard as nails, just like but just it's like Ninja Gaiden. Yeah, but yeah, actually, that was that's one of the the Master System games through the years that I've put a lot of time into, just because I just really really dig it. It's it, it it looks kind of like the NES game, but it feels and plays a little bit differently. It's it's better than in Ninja Gaiden three. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that game's really expensive, but it's one that I'd really like to check out sometime. Yeah, I didn't get great. to play it before this. Um, what other? Oh, R-Type, of course, was like... Uh, great. Such a good conversion. conversion. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if Sega did that or Compile or who, but whoever converted it did a fantastic job with it. R-Type, R-Type's one of my two favorite games for the system, uh, along with Fantasy Star. Um, but... It's just yeah, the the like you said, the conversion's amazing and the the fact that there's like no slowdown, it's just the pure masochistic experience from start to finish. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievably good. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm really impressed that they managed to pull that off. And that was 
that was really the game that I, you know, I had a friend who had a master system and we'd always argue about whose game systems were better. Um, that was the game that really made me say, man, I kind of wish I had a master system. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, then I, you know, then I played it and I was like, this is really hard. He makes it look so easy. Cause of course he played it obsessively mm-hmm. over and over again and got just like totally perfected it. But you know, it was really cool. And there was a Famicom port for that, but it never came to the U.S. for whatever reason. No, and I don't. I mean, I don't think the quality was nearly. Yeah, I don't as think we good. missed out. Yeah. Um, and then there were uh, there were two arcade ports in particular that were much more faithful to the arcade versions than the NES versions of those games were. Mm-hmm. First was Strider, which mm-hmm. really very carefully copied the arcade version, which is that kind of like cinematic action platformer where there's constantly something new being thrown into the mix. That's a that's a tall order for an eight bit game. Um, I don't know that the Master System really pulls it off though. Have you have you guys played that yet? I haven't gotten to that. I have yet. not played the Strider. Yeah, no, I haven't either actually. It's like it's really weird. It it almost kind of feels like it's just going through the motions. Like you play it and you're like, oh, I know all these parts, but it just it it's not it's not well done. I don't. It's really hard to describe. Like, even though all the bits are there and all the scenes and the encounters and the traps and everything, it's all just very flat. And, you know, playing that made me realize maybe Capcom had the right idea with the NES version just to do a different game because the mm-hmm. system just doesn't do it justice. Yeah. And, of course, you know, as a Genesis or a Sega fan, you had the Genesis version of Strider, which was which phenomenal. Was, yeah. Although it's, worth, it's worth pointing out, actually, um, the... the NES version of Strider, it wasn't done because right. they didn't think the NES couldn't do it. It was actually from the start planned to be a different game. Well, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. a lot of that that decision That's did come the from why. the fact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, Capcom took yeah. that approach with a lot of their NES yeah. conversions. All, yeah. Actually, all of them after a point, they yeah. were just different games. Yeah, and you know, Strider no, was no different. But yeah, from the start. no, it is yeah. part of that polymorphic concept. Yeah. It was tied yeah. with the manga and everything. Yeah, it was like a three pronged thing with arcade game, and then there was a manga and NES game that were both yeah. very closely related, hmm. whereas the arcade game was kind of its, its own thing. standalone thing. Uh, of course, the uh, manga never made it to the U.S., and the NES game never made it to Japan. So oh, weird. Kind of, <laughs> that's so weird. They dropped yeah, the ball. Yeah, really, they bungled that. It was weird. Yeah. It was supposed to go to Japan, but it didn't. Um, I think, on the other hand, Double Dragon is much more successful. It's um, I don't know if you guys have played that. I, I have that one. Yeah, I, I, take, a, I take a kind of a negative Uh-oh. tone on that one. I really don't. I really don't care for the Master System version of Double Dragon. Um, I back that up. What's your favorite yeah, really? console? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know that there is. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess I prefer the NES version. Me too. Um, I'll admit that it's completely broken, but, but I just am too attached to it. You know, like <laughs> yeah. the music and how it looks, uh, the weird experience point system that doesn't really matter. Like, right, but the, the the Master System version is more faithful to the arcade. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think the yeah, thing absolutely. is, I don't like the arcade game as much uh, as I like the well, NES version. That's yeah. a fair. That's a fair argument. But yeah. you know, I think a lot of people did want just like, oh yeah, I want the arcade experience. The Master System version has two-player simultaneous play, which the NES did not. Which is one of the reasons that I actually bought it, was was because of that. And um, having played that recently in two-player mode, yeah, it's there, but it's a flickery mess when mm, you play in two yeah. players. So it's, 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 it's like nearly unplayable. Does it look it's like Super Dodgeball so on the NES, that kind yeah. of flickery? It is. It's really, you're seeing enemies just completely disappear. Yeah. Mm. And it's like, eh, it's, well, it's, it's not really successful. It's, it's been a while since I've played it, but if I'm not mistaken, don't you have to hit an enemy like six or seven times to get them to go down. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it, it feels like a slog. Yeah. yeah. So. 
Fair enough. But I do like the fact that they converted the arcade content, but they really used the NES-style aesthetics for the sprites and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it's this kind of midpoint between the arcade game and the NES game. So, to me, it's it's interesting in that in that regard, yeah. at the very least. Okay, but, you know, so that's the arcade games. Um, the Master System also had a lot of conversions from other systems. We talked in the panel about all the down conversions from... Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Genesis games that were taken to Game Gear and then Streets of converted Rage into and Master System. And, yeah. yeah, like, I didn't even know a lot of these existed because they never made it to the U.S. They were just, yeah. like, in Brazil or Europe. Um, like, of those, which, which do you think works best? I mean, it's crazy that Gunstar Heroes is on Master System, but is that a good idea? <laughs> I've never actually played Gun. We were talking about this last night, and I've never yeah. played Gunstar Heroes on the Master System. I'm curious as to where, yeah, I've never played it. Streets of Rage was actually quite good. Uh, the Streets of Rage conversion is is pretty successful. I've heard Streets of Rage 2 isn't great, but the first one, um, it's a really solid port of, of Streets of Rage. Um, Sonic, of course, as we talked about in the panel, is a more or less a, a completely different game, but successful. Yeah. Successfully I, so. I played a lot of the Sonic Game Gear games. I had a friend with a Game Gear, and one thing that I got, I got really hung up on is when you get hit... Only one ring falls out yes. of you, yeah. which makes the game much, much harder. Like, yeah. just uh, it's weird that the technical limitations makes the game harder. It's rare that that ever happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, outside of that, I mean, I don't know. There, there, there's actually one that I was sort of discovering as we were getting ready for the show, and that's Road Rash. Mm. I don't know if anyone ever. I don't know if you've had any experience with Road Rash on the Genesis, even. I played a bunch on the Genesis. Yeah, yeah. Mm. love that game. It's fantastic. I mean, it's it's sort of a tech. It's very technically impressive on the Genesis. Oh yeah. Play the Master System version. It's wild how good it is like and how good it looks it looks very close to the genesis game it runs at a lower frame rate but it's it's really impressive what they pulled off with that and it's kind of something that i was getting at uh trying to get at during the panel or when we hear this later um is that it's a shame where the japanese uh support for the master system ended so quickly after it came out in the u.s and then of course it ends so quickly in the u.s after that because when you get into like the third and fourth generation games you're only seeing those in the UK and Brazil, and like Road Rash is a good example of that. Like you, you've got these coders who are really sort of getting down to the metal and figuring out what the system can do. Mm-hmm. And over here, we didn't get to see any of it, mm-hmm. and it's 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 too bad. There's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, but Road that, Rash that, is one that really end of life content on a successful right. system is always just like, how did they do this? You you look exactly. at exactly you know, like you know to compare it with the NES, you look at. Um, Urban Champion and compare that to Mighty Final Fight, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, this is the same console? That's interesting. And we never got to experience that here, where, you know, like, using Nintendo as an example, even when the Super Nintendo came out in 91, you were still getting really good NES games. Kirby's Adventures. And some of the best ones. Yeah, that was ones. 93, 94. Yeah, yeah, 93, 94. Some of the best ones came out in, in the next couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. And same thing with Super Nintendo versus N64. Hmm. So but it never really happens with... Sega abandons their con when they abandon them, they abandon them so completely. Yeah. Especially yeah. in Japan. Yeah. It's just I mean that, that's how they did the Saturn here. Yeah. They were like, ah, you guys, it, it's okay if we go it's a year done. without releasing any games yeah. for a Sega <laughs> system. That won't bother you, right? Yeah. question about uh, conversions from um, the Genesis. I think, Dylan, you talked about this before. Uh, Castle of Illusion. Oh, yeah. It's quite good. And it's different. And it's too. different. Yeah. It's a completely different game, different levels. 
And I kind of miss, I kind of miss that time in gaming history, I guess, in like the late '80s, early '90s, when there were just different versions of the what seemed would be the same game. Like we talked about Sonic, and uh, pretty much all the Disney games were different between Super Nintendo, Genesis, Master System. Mm-hmm. I mean, Aladdin. Aladdin. Exactly. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I kind of miss. I kind of miss that. You get different experiences depending on mm-hmm. the console you had. Mm-hmm. And, Nowadays, everything's so homogenized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah um, some other, you know, some of the other really notable games on uh, on Master System came from other systems. Uh, Golvelius, I think, started as an MSX game. MSX game. And um, I can't remember the exact relationship the American version had with the Japanese MSX game, but it was, like, changed in some ways and improved in some... Yeah, improved in uh, most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember the specifics, to be honest, uh, but I do know that um, the Master System version is considered, like, the quintessential one. Is it? I thought there um, was a... They took the Master System version and converted that to MSX2, and oh, that, that was considered okay. quintessential. Yeah, that might be the case. Um, but the the one for the Master System is just... It's brilliant. It's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's like... It's the Master System Zelda, basically. Well, no, um, that's, that's Golden Axe Warrior. I thought oh. that was Aztec Adventure. No. Yeah. Aztec Adventure. <laughs> That's like bad secret of Get Manor. out. Hey. I saw I know what they were trying to do. Yeah, but we they talk did it about really badly, um, but but Golvelius is great because it's it's like top down Zelda and then mm-hmm. side scrolling Zelda 2. Mm-hmm. Although I guess right. it's more like Dragon Buster because it's really linear. Well, there's but... two types of dungeons. I mean there's the side scrolling dungeon and then there's the top down horizontally scrolling dungeon where it's kind of turns into a shooter a little bit. Mm. And cuz it's compiled Right. Yeah. And the dungeons aren't as great as, as Zelda's, but I really actually prefer the overworld to to Hyrule. Hmm. Yeah. Blasphemy. And the the characters yeah. are sassier too. They are. <laughs> they call you a wastrel if you don't have enough money <laughs> in their store. It's a big word. And uh, that was also the first platform I think that an East game was published on. Uh, East. So. Just one, not not one and two. Just right. one came to Master System, and a generation of children grew up thinking it was Y apostrophe S because of the yeah. misprint on the label. Wise. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, definitive, like the, potato chips. the definitive U.S. release, I think, was the, um, the Turbo True. Duo version. And you had a guy going, ease, in the <laughs> yeah, beginning. Were, oh, it's not Wise? <laughs> um, but, you know, before that, like, that was, uh, that was kind of a, a taste of something that was getting pretty big in Japan and that, that was pretty obscure over here. Mm-hmm. So you don't really think of Genesis uh, and, and Master System as the uh, Sega as kind of like RPG mavens outside of Fantasy Star, but no. there were these little like moments where mm-hmm. Master System kind of touched on like action RPGs in, in ways that you didn't see on, on competing systems. We do have to talk about uh, is it Wonder Boy three or Monster World three? Oh, uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that soon. Okay, um, that's that's my burning uh, my burning thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the one other kind of unique little novelty that you see on Master System was sequel to, sequels to arcade games. Mm. I mentioned mm. Fantasy Zone 2 in the mm-hmm. panel. The Tears of Opa were, Opa. T- yeah. Tears of Opa Opa. <laughs> so sad. Why? Opa Opa. But there were, there were a couple of others. Um, I mean, basically all the Wonder Boy games were sequels to right. an arcade game. Mm-hmm. And a very different arcade game. Yeah, Nothing I mean, like those. The first one was Hudson's Adventure Island. Yeah. Actually, Hudson's Adventure Island was Wonder Boy. Yeah. Um, yes. But then, you know, the second game was, uh, I think the Master System version was a pretty direct conversion of Wonder Boy 2. But then starting with Wonder Boy 3, 
it just kind of went off in its own crazy direction. And, and Wonder Boy 3 is definitely my favorite Master System game. It is, like, everything I love about Metroidvania games and then some. It's, uh, it's like a cross between, I don't know, the Xanadu and Little Samson and Zelda 2. Just, like, all these games combined into one. It looks great. It has a really great overworld. Your hero is cursed to change into, like, a dragon or something yeah, like a dragon, dragon kid yeah. but then you gain the ability to change into other animals and uh i mean the shantae series is such a tribute to uh wonder boy 3 it's, mm-hmm. it's not even funny but no it's, it's my just, favorite it's such a good game yeah i think it holds up the best out of any uh of the master system library like i mean fantasy star is still a, a really great game but it's still also an rpg from 1987 so right. it feels like one yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah. i think well um, it's wonder boy 3 right wonder boy 3 yeah, monster you, world 3 is a shooter. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there's okay. There's uh, well, Wonder Boy. We need an episode. Wonder about Boy this. two in Monster World. Mm-hmm. Wonder Boy three, the Dragon's Trap. Trap. Monster World three, which is the shooter. I need um, visual. Isn't there one on Genesis that's called like Wonder Boy three Monster World yeah. two or something? And there's like a, that as well. Is there a port for that for Master System two? I don't believe well? so. Okay. I think Mass. I think Wonder Boy three was the last Wonder Boy yeah, game I think on they Master System. Pretty mm. much. There. Yeah. But yeah, you and can, Wonder you Boy can... or Monster World Three, I think, started as an arcade game. And yes, then, um, one of them did. That 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 whole format where you're walking along, going into the doors, and everything like that—that that was an arcade game originally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Wonder Boy Three actually saw ports to other systems. It showed up on Turbo CD, I want to say, as Revenge of Drencon, mm-hmm. which is a crazy expensive game. It's pretty much a nicer looking version of the the Master System game that sells for probably twenty times as much. There's a ridiculous number of Sega games on the Turbo Graphics CD, like Altered Beast, Outrun. There, there's all there's a Power Drift, yeah. Power Drift. Didn't they reskin some Wonder Boy game with like a bug theme, like an anime bug theme, and you can get both that version and the regular version on Virtual Console? I, I forget what it's called. Yeah, that's that's Revenge of Drunkard. Okay, that's what that is. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Uh, there's like three versions of the game for different systems. It's it's kind of weird, but I mean, it's it's a great game no matter what. Yeah. Uh, but the Master System is where it started, and it's fantastic um and that was developed by west one um that was yeah. another studio that worked with sega as a as a like a provider of content and one of the the creators making a new uh, game yep yeah. which is very much in the wonder boy what yeah. is it called like monster boy monster, monster boy, boy? yeah <laughs> it's stepping around not that IP. monster world it's <laughs> not wonder boy it's monster boy but who owns that property um sega probably sega it. okay hudson owned adventure island like Oh, we yeah. Could, we could do a whole episode. This is going to be an episode later. later. Yeah. I'll, I'll make it if you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's a worthwhile diversion because it is such a good game. It's really good. Uh, but it's certainly not the only great game, like original game for Master System. Uh, there's, of course, all the Alex... No, no, no. no. Um, there's Fantasy Star. There there's go. Fantasy Star. Fantasy yes. Star is awesome. So, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but was Fantasy Star... Was that... I think that was the first real sort of JRPG released in the U.S., wasn't it? It was. Uh, so in Japan... It was released, I think, the after same Dragon day Dragon. as Final Fantasy. Yeah. It was after Dragon Quest. It was Quest, after Dragon Quest, yeah. But it was, I, it was like the same week or like the week after Final mm-hmm. Fantasy. It was right there. Yeah. Right there with Final Fantasy. There's also Miracle Warriors. Yeah. Which I'm not sure. They're very close as far as like which one came first. That's true. Um, um, and it's not like it's very well documented in the US. And so, yeah. nor should you play. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's such a weird so let's game. Let's just go with Fantasy Star then. Yeah. Miracle Warrior is really strange. It's like, it's kind of abstract. Like the the overworld exploration, 
you have this little window of your characters walking, yeah. but you're not controlling your characters because they're just walking as a little scene. Instead, you're controlling a cursor moving across the Ugh, overworld. It's so painful. Uh, it sounds yeah. very uh, US PC RPG. Yeah. It's... Right. Which, I mean, a lot of JRPG grew out of that, right? Wizardry, wasn't it Wizardry? That was like mm-hmm. a hugely influential game over there. Yep, I mean that's what the, that's what gave rise to Black Onyx. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was a that was a big one. Um, you mentioned Maze Hunter 3D, which is not great. No. But it's on the Sega 3D Classics Classics Collection for 3DS, mm-hmm. which I've been working on a review for, and it makes sense that they would convert that. <laughs> it's a, it's a weird, obscure Master System only title. But it was, you know, about the 3D glasses. Right. And it took me a little while, but I got used to it, and it's it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's not of, bad. It's, it's kind of simplistic, and there's not much content there, but it's okay. The word classic only means it's old. Not that it's <laughs> right. good. I mean, Echo the Dolphin was a classic. I don't consider that game oh, a classic. Oh, Echo, come on. Echo's it's so great. hard. It's so mean. I just want to be a fun dolphin, but then they immediately <laughs> drown you. That's it. It's, it's, it's teaching you the plight of the, the real-world plight of the uh, dolphin. Life I, is you mean. Get, you it's get hard. caught in a tuna net and die. I could yeah. read a pamphlet about that. Yeah. Echo was on the Master System as well. Wow. I wonder what that looked like. <laughs> I'm sure it was great. It's funny, develop, uh, side note, developers of Echo eventually went on to make Jaws Unleashed, which is crazy. I love it, though. Sunrise, that's it. A game oh, where you're... Finally, revenge. Yeah, and you're an autonomous shark getting, like, card keys and stuff. It's it's crazy. It's awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> no betrayal. So, so, okay, Bob and I talked about Wonder Boy 3. What is your favorite Master System game? Oh, man. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would have to say... It's not Alex Kidd. I I don't think Miracle World is as bad as people want it to be. It just is not quite there yet. Yeah. Yeah, that was really their attempt to do a Mario thing, and it's just not as good as Mario. I actually think the Genesis one is worse than the Master System one. Yeah, it's so far worse. Yeah. 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 Cars just run into you five seconds into the game. Enchanted Castle. Yeah, it feels. And I finished Enchanted Castle recently. It's terrible. Yeah, but no, I mean, I don't know. I don't really have a game that stands out. Um, I mean, Fantasy Star is kind of there because it's it's Fantasy Star and it is really good for what it is. But I mean, there's a lot of different. There's a lot of other games. Like I love Choplifter. I love playing Hmm. Choplifter on the Master System. I know that's one of those arcade conversions. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, and it is technically an arcade conversion. It's so Uh, hard. It is so hard, but it's so so much fun. (laughs) And I really, really dig. the Streets of Rage conversion, Jurassic Park of all things. Um, I really, really like the Jurassic Park conversion on the Master System. What is it a conversion of stri- the Genesis game? It's just its own game. I shouldn't okay. say it's conversion. It's it's its own game. Is it it's like its the Genesis platform. game or kind of in that it's a side-scrolling platformer? Mm. But it's that's kind of where they they depart. But can you play as the Raptor? No. Okay. <laughs> Bob's not interested. But it's just one of those. It's it's nice because it's um it's a side-scrolling action game, but it's one of those ones where every level is kind of unique, like. You're running through a forest and there's dinosaurs jumping out of the bushes and you're tasing them or something. It's like you don't kill them; they jump back into the bushes, and then you'll go into this next scene, and um, there'll be uh, lightning will strike a tree and suddenly the whole world's on fire because you're in the Whoa. middle of the jungle and you're dealing with jumping from tree to tree as everything's burning down and huh. it's like really ambitious for a for a Master System game. It's, huh. it's bizarre, but it's it's great. And then probably I would say Outrun is definitely up there for me too. Mm-hmm. It's a really good conversion, although it's taxing the system. Yeah, Big absolutely. Yeah. Especially when you take a curve, or you go under those arches. Yeah, because it, it's it's funny because it's uh, the camera's locked to your car ninety percent of the time in Outrun, but when you get to that famous section where you're going under the stone arches, 
the screen locks instead, and you're moving left to right on the screen, and it's very disorienting. Mm. There's no warning for it, and there's no warning for when it's going to stop. <laughs> but eventually, the, the camera will lock back to your car again. Because it's just that's the way the system handled it. But it's really well done from the review. Hmm. Dylan, how about yourself? Bearing in mind that you've only made it to 1989. Sure it does. <laughs> uh, R-Type, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I like punishing shoot 'em ups and there are a few that have really challenged me as much as that one has. Um, the only one I can... This one is not as challenging, Life Force on the NES, but it's the only thing I can compare it to if you've never played... Uh, if you've never played R-Type. It's like... Obviously, they're different series, but, but just... Uh, just the amount of crap that's happening mm-hmm. on screen at the, at the uh, asks you to deal with is, is just yeah. Our type has a very distinct pace. It's this very slow paced shooter where mm-hmm. you have very finite controls, and it's very very pattern and memorization based, even more so than most shooters, mm-hmm. um, and very challenging in that front. It was actually it really inspired a lot of clones. I mean the the infamous Zero Wing with all your base mm-hmm. oh, yeah. like that was that was a total R type clone, and it was certainly not the only one. There were mm-hmm. lots of those. Um, Gradius is more like a fast-paced kind of yeah. free-form, freewheeling shooter. You know, you get some power-ups. You kind of have your choice of how you build your ship mm-hmm. out. Our type is much more limited. You have kind of your your power-up to begin with. You have mm-hmm. that that bit that sits in front of you that you can move behind you and use it as a weapon, use it as a shield. Um, so there is a, a lot of versatility, but it's with a more limited tool set. Right. So and kind of just with the tools you have at the beginning. So. Yeah, it's a, like you said, it's a really good good conversion to Master System. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's really about it. We've, we've gone on a full podcast length between this and the panel, so <laughs> hopefully the panel sounds good enough to uh, include here. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just going to be a little short episode about us talking about Master System games. Yeah, ain't um, nothing wrong with that. I think but, it will make up for the sins of the past. Apparently, people are... Nothing will ever We're still steamed. We're so sorry. We're doing the full battle, all of us together. (laughs) Our heads are scraping the floor. Yeah, oars. Um, So anyway, for Retronauts, this has been Jeremy Parrish. Um, You can find Retronauts at retronauts.com, on iTunes, at usgamer.net, on Twitter as Retronauts, etc., etc. This podcast is supported by Patreon. In fact, we're here in Milwaukee with two guests that we flew in through the grace of Patreon. So everyone who supports this podcast makes events like this and productions like this possible, where we actually get experts from out of town and have them come and talk to us. How about that, huh? Can't beat that. Your money is being put to good use. We're not just buying toys and video. Actually, we're not buying any. We need experts because I only want to talk about Alf. <laughs> you didn't talk about Alf at all. An hour and a half well, I felt a, I felt ashamed after, after I brought it up. Oh, God. People are no, people aren't going to like this podcast either. Man, well, stay tuned for my <laughs> Alf cast. All right, there you go. So anyway, uh, Greg, Dylan, tell us about yourselves, uh, where we can find you on the internet and so forth. Uh, you can find me on the Player One podcast over at playeronepodcast.com. Uh, coming up on our five hundredth episode. Wow, very soon. Uh, with counts is just baby stripling compared to you guys. Uh, yeah, right. With a couple of uh, other ex Sif Davis hosts, uh, Chris Johnston and Phil Theobald. And you can find me at generation-16.com, which is uh, my History of the Genesis YouTube series. Yeah, it's a chrono gaming series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. I like it a lot. Thank I've been enjoying much. it. Thank you. And Dylan? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at TheDylanV um, or on SegaDoes.com where I am going through every game ever released for a Sega console starting from SG-1000 
uh, till I decide to quit out of exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you if you listen to this podcast and you're curious to know more about SG One Thousand, Sega does mm-hmm. is the place to go to learn more. It's it's exhaustive. I'm sure, especially <laughs> it's exhausting. Exhausting. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, where are you now in the in the chronology of Master System? Um, like, what's the most recent game you wrote about? Recent game. Shoot, put me on the spot here. Um, well, uh, what's coming to mind is Bomber Raid, and that's totally not accurate. Um, but I know that when I start up, uh, I'm going to, I think, jump into a European-only release. Like, I think it's already to that point, early 1990. So, well, who knows, right? Because the Europeans don't have concrete release dates, but 1990 is when you start seeing a lot of the European-only games. So, mm. yeah. And Bob? Oh, I just realized like everybody in this room has their own chronological project. I guess so we're all wired oh, that yeah, way. I do. So I wanted But it's to... not about video games. No, I have other interests, Gasp. Uh, That's not cool. Yeah, so I do Talking Simpsons. It's the Chronological Simpsons podcast on the Laser Time Podcast Network. Go to lasertimepodcast.com or look for Talking Simpsons in your podcast thing. And also, you can find me on Twitter as Bob Servo, and you can read my writing at usgamer.net and somethingawful.com. That's it for me. And I, Jeremy Parrish, write at usgamer.net. And, of course, I have my chrono series, Gameboy.World and GoodNintentions.com, which uh, detail the complete life of the Nintendo Game Boy in its full, full detail. <laughs> Japan, Europe, America, everything. Good Intentions is much more sane. It's just NES games released in America in the order in which they were released here, regardless of when they originally came out in Japan. So you can find me there or on Twitter as GameSpite. Not Game Sprite. I keep seeing people refer to me as Game Sprite. They're like, hey, check out this cool video by Game Sprite. No, I don't know who that is, but it's not me. <laughs> so anyway, that's it for us. Thank you for listening. And if you were one of the cool people who came out to our show at Midwest Gaming Classic to hear us talk about Master System, thank you for doing that. For everyone else, we'll probably be doing a live performance, live performance, live panel this I'll fall. be performing. Yeah. <laughs> Bob will be like juggling for it. us yeah. as a, probably most likely at Portland Retro Gaming Expo. Mm-hmm. So you can look forward to that this fall. And in the meantime, you can check us out at retronauts.com. And we do podcasts weekly. Next week, we'll have a regular podcast, a normal episode, followed by a micro. So stay tuned. Thanks a lot. And we'll be back soon.